0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Om, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to a Sukkot teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Today we're going to talk about the Etrog because in all the years that I've learned and studied on Sukkot or given a shiur on Sukkot, I've never done something on the Etrog. And I I'm kind of fascinated by it. In fact, this year, if anybody anybody read the Herman article on uh, on the business of etrogim this year, anyone read it yet? It's a great article. It's front page article. It's fantastic. Yeah, she said, she said, well, Daniel by Daniel Miller. That's what I meant. I don't know why I said Herman. It's on my I mind. Thank you. I don't know why I said Herman. I meant Miller. It's been a long day, but the Miller article. It's fantastic great article i highly recommend it the business of extra is really interesting and i read this other great article from several years back that i didn't include because ironically it would have killed a lot of trees or it would have honored the killing of a lot of trees because it's a long article about the history of the etrog which originated as a fruit in anyone want to take a guess what part of the world not persia i heard it china that's correct. China. Thank you, Tybal. It originated in China. It is a fruit that originated in China as a five-fingered fruit that eventually in its um, repollination in other parts of the world became this singular, more lemon-looking uh, fruit. I love to tell the story that when my husband was working at a facility for elderly folks in uh, Connecticut, uh, towards the end of our time in seminary, he would always bring etrogim because it's a real sensory experience for people who might not otherwise be able to participate in Jewish life. Jewish ritual life that's heavily sensory is really great. Um, and uh, the etrog is pungent. It's a very pungent experience. And there's this one woman who every year, he was there for about three years or so, would say, Rabbi, let me smell the holy lemon. Every every year, let me smell the holy lemon. I I think about it, you know, let me smell the holy lemon every year. So this atrogue, which we associate um, as a very particular type of fruit, um, originated in China and eventually found its way across the world. You can find great historical articles about the evolution of that fruit itself and how it became what it is. Today, what I want to talk about is the origin of the rabbinic imagination of the etrog, what they were imagining when they read about what was, that what would become the etrog in our Torah sources, and how it became the case that the thing that we pick up inside little boxes in padding is what we all envision as an etrog now, from what was once not necessarily describing this fruit that originated on the other side of the world. So I'm starting from Midrash, ancient Midrash, very, very old Midrash, a collection of stories on the book of Leviticus called Vayikra Rabbah. And this one is ascribed to Rabbi Mane. This is Rabbi Mani open. So Patah, Rabbi Mane or Rabbi Mane Pitach. And he spoke about this little line from Tehillim. Kol Atzmotai Tomarna. I did not mispronounce that. I've actually been in an online conversation with people about the pronunciation about this line. I, I can't get too off topic or digress too much, but where do we see this line in our Sidor? In Pasuket de Zimra, not every day, but only on Shabbat and Yuntiv, where? In Nishmat Kochai, we say Kol Atzmotai Tomarna. That's usually how we pronounce it. It comes from Tehillim, Kol Atzmotai Tomarna. But some people claim that the pronunciation of this line should be Kol Atzmotai Tomarna. I cannot teach that shiur right now. But I'm working on a shiur on that pronunciation. I'm very excited about it because when this actually came from the fact that uh, my husband is now the Hebrew teacher at Beverly Vista Middle School, and one of his students came to him with this question. He said, Mr. Chorney, he goes by Mr. Chorney there, Mr. Chorney, is is the word call or kol in this line? And my husband, being a grammarian but also a davener, said it's kol asmatai tomarna. And the student said That's not what my rabbi says, and I give a lot of credit to my husband, who was not defensive about it at all, and said, let me look into it. And as a matter of fact, there is a long-standing hundreds-of-year-old debate about the pronunciation of this line from Psalms. So, either kol or or kol atzmotai tomarna adonai micha mocha. If it's kol, then we translate it as, all of my bones shall say, Lord who is like you. We don't necessarily need to look at the other translation in order to continue with this midrash, this imagining of what the rest of what it might mean for our, all of our bones to praise God. It, this imagination goes on to think about lots of different accoutrements of the holiday, then being things that we use representing parts of our, of our body praising God. Lona Mar pasuk ze This pasuk, this line, was was not spoken for anything other than bishvil lulav. It was spoken about lulav. It, that, that's all it was saying. That's all it was talking about. lulav adam. The spine of the lulav, the palm branch, the straight part, the thing that we see sticking up in the middle of all of our palm trees all around here that are not native to the area. The, uh, the hadas is like the eye, the shape of the eye, right? And the arava, the willow, is like the mouth. Veha etrog, the etrog is like the lev. A lev. What is the lev? The lev is the heart which, in ancient consideration, was the seat of wisdom. It was the seat of wisdom. It eventually would become a, uh, connected with the notion of emotionality, but in ancient, in the rabbinic mind, and in parallel traditions to uh, when Vayik or Raba would have been written, it would have been considered the seat of wisdom. The etrog is like the heart. And these are all what? Why, why are they comparisons? Why is the spine like the spine and the hadas like the, the what's, what's so similar? Like what, what are these? What's the comparison? The shape, right? It's the shape. The spine is like the spine. The shidra is like the shidra. And so the, the etrog is like our heart because what? Right, the lulav itself has a spine. And why is the etrog like the lev, like the heart? Somebody had done an autopsy, right? And and they said that's what the heart looks like. Like this is what it's like, and it is roughly the same shape and size. One of the things that I like, I'm not even going to finish the midrash. It's a lovely midrash, but that's not what we're here to do. I'm I am mentioning this because the etrog is uh, is like when they when this va'yikra raba imagining of the etrog being like the lev when they say. Oh, the etrog is like a heart. We can imagine it, right? Can we imagine it and picture it and say, "Oh, that's a nice—that's a nice uh, simile, right? That's a very nice simile. That's a very pretty picture. The etrog is like the heart." So already we are picturing what they are picturing, probably something pretty similar. Do you have a hand, Joey? Yeah. Beautiful, Lulav. And la Live have the same root. And we're going to, I'm so glad you brought that up. Hold that thought. When we get to our last source, we're going to come back to that. It won't have to do with our main point, but it's still a lovely thought. Okay. So now you know that in ancient imaginings, already we have this idea of the etrog, this idea of a fruit of some kind of species of some kind that kind of looks like what we kind of picture already in some way. You believe me that we're like already talking about this kind of a fruit of some kind. Now, we're going to jump into the Talmud. The Talmud is codified roughly in the year 600 of the Common Era. So can, you can put yourself in that, in that time zone, okay, about 1,500 years ago. And already, they're bringing something. Thankfully, um, all of the stuff, I want to remind you, that's not in bold in the English in Zafaria is not there in the Aramaic or the Hebrew. The stuff in bold in English in Safaria is there in the Hebrew or Aramaic and very occasionally French. The stuff that's not in bold is there to help us understand or to make the sentences sound more like English. Got it? So when it's not in bold and it says it was taught in the Tosefta, that is the helper Safaria text telling us that when – we see the word Tana, taf Nun Aleph, that's there to tell us that we're learning something that's being brought from a Tosefta-like text. In this case, it's from the Tosefta. The Tosefta is either a text that's earlier than the Mishnah or parallel to the Mishnah, depending on whether or not you studied with Rabbi Dr. Judith Hauptman. Uh, and depending on like your theory of it, but basically we're talking about a text from 400 years even before the Talmud that we're about to read. Here's what the text said: A dry lulav is unfit. It's pasul. It's not kosher. Rabbi Yehuda, who is the organizer of the Mishnah, says Makshir, It's fit. Amar Rava machloket belulav. So Rava said there is a dispute that has to do with the lulav. De Savri lulav So he says. We talk about comparing the lulav to the etrog, and it has to do with the verses. Ma etrog ba'e hadar, af lulav ba'e hadar. Just as the etrog is related to or comes from the notion of the word hadar, which means what? Beauty. So it's connected to a verse that has to do with beauty, af even also the lulav uh, comes from a verse with the word beauty. The Rabbi Yehuda Savar and Rabbi Yehuda held or holds, his opinion still holds, la makshinan lulav etrog. He says we don't compare these two things. They are not alike. Aval b'etrog divrei hakol hadar b'einan. But everyone with regard to this etrog says that we do agree when it comes to requiring hadar The beauty. So not everybody agrees that the Lulav has to be connected to the notion of Hadar or beauty, but everyone agrees that the etrog must be connected to Hadar or beauty. The reason is, and you see it not in the bold, because the verse that it's connected to has to do with, and this comes from the verses that were read in the chapter in chapter 23, preates hadar. Pre-8s hadar. What is pre-ates hadar? Pre-fruit of the eights, a tree, hadar of beauty, or or, or that's beautiful. And a pre ates hadar gets translated as etrog, eventually. They become synonymous. pre ates hadar becomes synonymous with etrog. Dry etrogim, remember that from the very beginning, the idea was the, the question of whether or not a, a dried out lulav was okay or whether or not a, um, and therefore, whether or not a dried etrog is okay. So a dried out lulav, probably okay, depends on the, which of these rabbis you're following, their opinion, but it might be okay because we don't necessarily all agree that that a lulav has to be connected to hadar. But everyone agrees that we may not use a dried out etrog. I'm gonna, we're going to keep going in sukkah in 31A, but I want to plant a question. Don't answer it yet, okay? Don't answer it. I just want you to think about it. Why are we talking about dried out game? Don't answer yet. Just think about it. Why might somebody come and ask the question, can I use a dried out etrog? Think about it. Hold, think about it. Hold that thought. We're going to keep reading. The Gemara asked another question: Uva etrog mi'bayi Rabbi Yehuda Hadar. So, what about Rabbi Yehuda's opinion about etrog? We haven't heard it yet. The HaTanya isn't it taught? And they're talking about a baraita, an earlier rabbinic teaching: Arbaat nin shabalu with regard to the four. Meaning the species that are in a lav, which includes the etrog, sheein pochatin mehen ein Just as you may not, uh, you may not um, um, take away from the number of items that you have, you may not add items. So you can't have two things. You can't have two species. You can't have eighteen species in it. You can't make a big bouquet. Lo matza etrog, lo yavi, lo parish, lo rimon, velo davar acher. And if lo matzah etrog, I don't know why we don't have the word if, lo matzah etrog, imagine the if. If he didn't find an etrog, he shouldn't bring not a parish, that's a quince. Anyone seen a quince before? Is that familiar? A quince? I've seen a quince. Google it after Yom Tov. It's very interesting. I should have brought these fruits to show you as like a show and tell. Velo Rimon shouldn't bring a pomegranate. Velo devar Acher. Not anything else at all. They just gave up giving us a list. Nothing else. Don't bring something else. Kamushin. If they are dry, kashirin. They are. Uh, sorry, uh, kamushin is um, the way to describe it. Is it's like gummy. Yeah, yeah. It's like if it, if it becomes like um, ra- raisined. Does that make sense? Raisined? Yeah. Okay, great. That's a, that's a word? Raisined? That's, it is. Now. It's, it is. I, it's not a word, it's an image. Okay, it's raisined and it's uh, shriveled. Uh, if it's shriveled, that's fine. Yevashin, completely dried out. Okay, when I said dried, I meant raisin, but I realized that when I got to yevashin, that wasn't going to be helpful. So, camushine, like like kind of raisiny and, and wrinkly and a little bit dried out? Kishirine, it's fine. Yevashin, totally dried out Pasulin, it's not fit. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, off Yevashin. Rabbi Yehuda said, answering the question from the beginning of this paragraph, even if it's completely dry, it's fit. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to answer my question. I'll re-ask it. Why are we asking the question, is it okay to bring a completely dried out etrogue? Why might someone have that as a legitimate question to, quote-unquote, ask the rabbi? Why would this come up? So Rose is asking if there's an association with dried out being dead. It is, as a matter of fact, yes. But my question is, why do we think that people are... Are asking if they can, in fact, if it, if it is permitted to bring it, I'm going to actually point to, I'm going to call on Tybel uh, who's, who's nicely raising her hand here. And then I'm going to uh, call on Asia and move around the table this way. Yeah. Tybal. Because it's so fragrant, people save it. And you have to make sure it's this year's Etrog and not last year's Etrog. So it's so, you said it's so fragrant, people save it? Yes. So, so you would have, you might have one from last year and the year before and whatever and do great. you need to get a new one? Fantastic. So very, very let's keep it very simple. You might have last year's Etrogue because it still smells lovely, may you still use it. Leave it at that. That's a great reason for the question. Good. AJ, what's another reason someone might ask? So two things I hear in there. Number 1, it can be quite rare and hard to find. And secondarily, if you find it and it's a bit shriveled up or maybe even dried by the time you find it on the tree, is it permissible? Great. Did I see another hand over here somewhere? Okay. Uh, I'll go to Nico and then I'll come over. And if you haven't met him yet, Nico is our rabbinic intern. He sometimes teaches where I'm standing or in parallel in Pilch and Nico. And then I'll come over here to Michael. Yeah. Great. So they're incredibly expensive. It may take a lot of resources in order to acquire one. And therefore, if I get one, I might hold on to it. It might wind up in one of these questionable states, and I might have to ask about it. Great. Why else? It might be Shemitah. And I'm going to expand upon that as well. So what Michael said is it might be Shemitah, meaning that you might be in a year in which you are not permitted to harvest from the land that is in the land of Israel where the etro game are growing and therefore you may have to have acquired it previously. Or have acquired it from a source from which it may have been shriveled or dried and have these questions. And I'll add to that, that you may just generally be in a position in which you were unable to, uh, you may just be in a, in a, in a questionable harvest situation in regard to them, because in addition to them being difficult to acquire in terms of the fact that they might be expensive or you might, uh, it might be, um, in general, hard to find one where you are. It also might be that the crop themselves might have been difficult to come across back at that time. Great. So the timing of the hog might fall out such that what if you didn't actually acquire one? Because again, it could be a harvest issue. It could be an acquisition issue in general. But what if you had a dried one? And wouldn't it be better to have a shriveled or a dried one than not to have one at all. And then you could bring in the other part of this, by the way. Like, you might ask the question, what's better if I don't yet have my fresh etrogue? I ordered it from Amazon. Just kidding. <laughs> it didn't arrive in time. And uh, and now my question is, do I bring a pomegranate? Do I bring a dried out etrogue, perhaps from last year? Or do I bring nothing at all? Okay, great. We're going to pause it there. Wonderful answers. I really appreciate all of this uh, and all of these ideas. What I want, what I want to do is to to go to the last source. Skip over Brachot fifty seven a because I want us to actually finish on time. I'm afraid that if we get into that, we might. We might actually not finish on time, but I do want to let you know, Joey, that at the end of that previous source, if you look into it, that that lulav gets reread as low lev, not low as in Lamid Aleph, but low as in a- ascribing to that person low lev. He has a heart or they have a heart. So a lulav. They if you re- re- if you read it with different uh vowelization, he has a heart. So it's a really beautiful, I, read it on your own time uh, because I want to finish this all together. I want to go to this last part of the Talmud and I want to offer you a way of thinking about etrog and acquisition and all of the challenges that we might come across um, and a lesson about flexible thinking. Amar Mar, the master stated, Mar as in that someone named Mar who we whom we hear from often uh, in um, actually in, in Sukkot, um, in, in Masachet Sukkah often. Amar mar, lo Matsa etrog, if he didn't find an etrog, okay? All right, now he hasn't found one. Amazon definitely is way behind on shipping. He doesn't have one in time. Lo yavi, lo rimon, the lo parish, ve lo He shouldn't bring anything else. Not the pomegranate, not the quince, Not the, nothing, nothing else. Pshita, the Gemara says, shouldn't that be obvious? Mahu de tema. So, like, why, why bring this up? What's the point of saying this? Lest you say, laite or laite. I don't like their vowelization. Um, ki hechi. Shalot tishachach. Torat etrog. So that the category of etrog not be forgotten. Ka mashmalan. Zinin de nafek khorba mine. Because Rabbi Yehuda teaches us that it is prohibited, meaning he's, going, he's referring back to the previous teaching from Rabbi Yehuda, because there's going to be some sort of a horba, a destruction from this practice, because some might wind up doing this even when etrogim are available why might people i'll take a couple of suggestions why might people wind up bringing a quince or a pomegranate or a i don't know what's your favorite fruit a, a watermelon a dragon fruit a lemon right right well if i have a lemon tree if it's, if it's in my backyard might i bring it because it is the choicest fruit that i have in my backyard Right? Might it be? It's very possible that it might be. Okay. Well, it looks like, can't I just substitute it? Won't it be the thing? Won't, it, won't Don't I want it? Don't I want it to be permitted? Okay. So, here, here is the lesson of this extraordinary Gemara, in my opinion. I think that one would think that the lesson of the Gemara would actually be inverted. I actually would have thought that dry etrogim would not have been permitted. I would have thought, especially Rabbi Yehuda, would not have permitted the dry etrogim whatsoever. In fact, I would have thought that the fresh fruit would have been the thing that would have been preferable to bringing anything dried because of the notion of pre-eitz hadar. I would have thought, given the notion of pre-eitz hadar from the Torah, that we would have learned that we are supposed to learn in every generation what pre-eitz hadar is for our generation and then assume that and then bring that along. And then, therefore, if I didn't have an etrog freshly, then I should bring whatever my pre aits hadar is and the whole point is to bring your choices fruit. That's what I would have thought. But the exact opposite is what is taught in the Talmud. In the Talmud, we learn Even a dry etrog can be kasher, even yavesh, it's okay, according to Rabbi Yehuda, and it's not okay to bring anything besides an etrog, lest we forget what an etrog is, lest we forget what the Torah of an etrog is. Shalot tishachach torat etrog lest we forget what the Torah of an etrog is. Most of the time in life, I think this is the wrong way to think about things. We need to practice much more flexible thinking about most of what we do. It is not smart to decide at 8 or 9 in the morning that I want to eat This dish from this restaurant tonight that I'd like delivered at that time and then get to that time at at night, order from that restaurant, find out that they don't have that dish at that restaurant and decide that the best possible thing would be that I shouldn't eat dinner. That's not great thinking. That's not how we go through life most of the time, right? Most of the time, ideally, we shouldn't set out to say that there's only one singular thing that we'll do in a circumstance or in a scenario. The lesson of the etrog isn't to teach us to think more like this more of the time. The lesson of the etrog is that the etrog is the exception. The lesson of the etrog is that the etrog is the exception. Most of the time in life, we should be blessed to think more flexibly because all of the ideas that you came up with are the way that we cope and strategize to live, to live well, to nourish ourselves, to save resources, to think wisely, to live nicely with our families, to live in community. This is how we strategize to live every day. The etrog is the exception. We come and we pick out these really beautiful yellow fruit and we pick them out of boxes and we feel a little bit silly that we don't just go and pick the lemon from our backyard or we don't just pull out the one that we dried from last year. But it's the exception to the rule. So when we finish Sukkot this year and even before we finish it, I want to encourage you to remember that it's the exception and that we should most of the time be blessed that the beautification of things in our life isn't to make sure that we have the exact perfect thing. That's what makes the etrog so special is that it has to be exactly perfect. Everything else in our life doesn't need to be exactly perfect. And when we don't make it so that everything in our life has to be exactly perfect, life is a heck of a lot nicer for us and for all the other people who we are around as well that is the Torah's Etrog that's the Torah of the Etrog you have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles if you enjoy these podcasts we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts for more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles go to TBA. LA.org.